back with the third installment of season two of Cibolo Creek Conversations. Season two, episode three. Yeah. Wow. Maybe someday we'll look back. We'll be on season 10, episode 15. Yeah. Now, I can't even imagine what our uh, taking the wrong turn in the conversation will look like by then. <laughs> be like, we'll just devolve. <laughs> You're supposed to get better at this, but you just we just keep getting more. <laughs> yeah, people say I used to listen to that podcast, but then they they just they were everywhere. I couldn't I couldn't keep up with them. Yeah, between that and making people mad, it'd be one or the other. <laughs> I hope we're not making too many people mad. Yeah, hopefully not too many. Granted, if they're listening to us on the podcast, then they probably kind of know what they're already getting. Yeah, probably. Like if you make somebody mad on a Sunday morning, they're probably not going to go seeking out more of your content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see that a lot. They can listen to me for 10 minutes and get an idea of whether or not I'm going to make them mad. That's <laughs> uh, all good. Oh, but but anyways, so we have been just kind of um, diving deeper into your the content that you cover on Sunday mornings. And we're, we kind of put together just recently that we are a, a week ahead. But... Um, this last week you talked about the woman at the well, and that's within the context of we're looking at how to have a relationship with Jesus. And so this next, I guess, installment of um, that, I guess, overarching topic of, of how to have a relationship with Jesus and to be with Jesus, to get to know him, to grow, is we're going to be looking at encounters that Jesus had. Is that right? Yeah, yeah so still on the topic of, how to have a relationship with Jesus. We talked about faith. We talked about heart as the Bible describes it, that intangible place where we relate to life. We've talked about the soul. We talked about the place of scripture and prayer and kind of nurturing the environment of our soul in order for the relationship to thrive. So what I decided we do kind of as a, a bit of a turn in the series is to simply... Um, look at some of the encounters that people have with Jesus in the in the story of the Gospels. Um, people who had either extended or very personal conversations with him or people who had something that we would describe as a relationship, a friendship with him. Mm. And just say, of all the things that we could learn from those passages of Scripture, what can we learn about being in a relationship with Jesus? Yeah. And so this was the first week that we started that, which is kind of a new a new thing for me. I, I don't do a lot of character studies. I kind of observed that while I was preparing that message. Like, man, I don't do this a lot. I typically do kind of theological, topical sorts of subjects. And then I, I look for characters that provide illustration to points I'm trying to make. But um, I thought oh, it might be interesting to spread my wings a little bit, and yeah. try some of this. And so the first discussion was around the passage in John 4 with the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always, because I feel like the the disciples themselves, obviously, um, I kind of see it as like on-air, off-air. Like what they have written down is like their on-air time with Jesus. But I'm always so fascinated by what it would look like with their off-air, just day-to-day traveling from place to place. And... So the woman at the well, that would be um, kind of, it would kind of stand out in that they're all traveling through a place that they don't normally go to, right? Samaria. 
Right. So what was, I guess, the context of that? Why didn't the Jews like the people in Samaria? And did it go both ways? I guess what was kind of the the beef the Jews and or the Samaritans have with the Jews or vice versa? Yeah, so you know, just there's a long history there between the two the two groups. I mean, they're both Jews. Jews and Samaritans come from Jewish lineage. However, in history past, the the Samaritans were a part of the Jewish exile. Before they were the Samaritans, they were Jews that went into exile. And it was the practice in exile to take the captured population and disperse them as a way of sort of, you know, um, diminishing their power by circulating them to other places. And they'd either go back to the homeland of the conquering country or they would go to a region where the conquering country was trying to beef up their presence. And a lot of times they'd take the best and the brightest, they take the smartest and the strongest, and they'd plug them into the society of the conquering country. So either the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians. And um, what they would do is they would essentially try to assimilate the captured people into the culture the beliefs, the practices, the morals of the conquering country. So like we see in Daniel, uh, in the story of Daniel, they're plugged into government. They become a part of the the civic system. And so um, these people end up being in exile for 70-some years, and they, they they make a life in this new place. And part of the practice was to encourage of the conquering country was to encourage them to intermarriage. That's just a way of diminishing that identity of the conquered people. And so there were some Jews who refused to do it, and then there were some Jews who um, accommodated that, and so they end up marrying people from another nationality, another race, and, you know, building lives, starting families and creating, you know, jobs and houses and all that. And so they, they assume this life of sort of a mix between, um, I was born Jewish, but now I've adopted all these Babylonian kind of ways or these mm. Assyrian kind of ways. Well, then the Jews are permitted back into their territories. They come in, and so now you have these Jews that kind of held out, and they kind of think of themselves as, you know, the noble protectors of our ancient lineage. And then you have these Jews that intermarried. And so, just for term, noble Jews, they look down their noses at the Samaritans because they, and the word we would use in our society, they were half-breeds. They were mixed race. And so, I guess in some, some respects, kids... Uh, their children may have looked a little bit differently, different coloring, different, you know, texture to their hair, whatever, uh, different body builds. So, but anyways, the, the, the Samaritans were considered less than the other side of the tracks. They weren't given the same sort of social accommodations or privileges. So maybe in some sense it was a more impoverished community of people and um, we know religiously they weren't 
they weren't really invited to worship in Jerusalem. Mm. So they had to kind of create their own center of worship. And that all happens, and that's described in John chapter 4. Um, so there's also, I read in some of my research, that there was some sort of a, oh, some sort of a conflict between Jews and, and Samaritans, uh, some sort of a, a big riot that had happened, and I don't know all the details of that, but um, evidently that created an even worse tension between the two groups. Mm. So then what we learn, not only from John 4, but also from a few other passages, that if, if a noble Jew was traveling either north to south or south to north, so from the area of the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem, they wouldn't go as the crow flies. They wouldn't go straight because that would take them through the heart of Samaria. So they'd either turn right or left and either go out along the Mediterranean Sea, so a coastal route, which, from what I understand, was a little bit longer and a little bit more of a difficult journey. So most of them coming out of the Sea of Galilee area, they would they would turn uh, left, go across the Jordan River and come down along the river on the outside and then come back across into Jerusalem because they were just so opposed to mixing it up with the Samaritans. And there was, I'm sure there was all sorts of stereotypical, you know, attitudes about it's not safe and uh, those people are unclean and we don't want our kids playing with them, that kind of thing. We don't want to be eating their, in their restaurants and kind of similar to how the Jews would react to Gentiles. I'm happy to guess. Yeah. So we see that eventually later in the, in the history of the early church. Jews and Gentiles felt the same way. Now that one, that was that was more of a spiritual yeah. uh, discrimination against each other. The the Jews looked down at the Gentiles because they weren't God's chosen people and they were they were immoral. Whereas the Gentiles looked down their noses at the Jews because the Gentiles tend to be more intellectually oriented, more philosophically oriented. So they looked at the Jews as well, that's silly, the stuff they believe in. That's myth and mystery. And, and so you just had this kind of social hatred for each other based on these kind of deeply held religious beliefs. But to the Samaritans, it was more of a kind of a racial kind of thing. Mm. And so they just didn't like each other. And so it's funny, it's interesting in John chapter 4, you got a lot of lines being crossed. The fact that Jesus being a man interacting with this Samaritan woman that would have been a you know taboo uh, particularly knowing who she was or what her life was like so you got a, a Jewish man interacting with a Samaritan woman you have a Jewish rabbi interacting with this woman who from the story we we gain she has a bit of a checkered past she's been through five husbands and who knows all the story behind that and then um, just the Jew and Samaritan sort of a dynamic. So it's interesting, you know, the disciples are gone when the passage begins. They're, ev- they're in town looking for food. They come back. We didn't cover that part in the message, but they come back and they're like, what's going on here? Like, why are you talking to her? 
why are you a rabbi talking to a woman like that? Why are you a Jew talking to a Samaritan? And what, what in the world are you thinking about asking her for water? It's just all of those sorts of tensions and yeah. discriminatory sorts of um, attitudes toward each other. And it, it just opens up all these doors of opportunity for Jesus to educate her and to educate his disciples. And um, so it's, it's a fascinating passage. And I've grown up in church since I was in the third grade. So I've heard the story many, many, many times, yeah. both as a kid and as an adult. And it seems like there's always three or four ways that the passage is always preached. It's always preached about the social lines that Jesus is crossing, it's sort of some of the conventions that he's breaking. So there's that sermon. Um, there's always great interest in what is the living water that he speaks of. Um, there's all, also, I've heard this, I've actually heard this passage preached a number of times, like in evangelism seminars and like how you dialogue with unbelievers and questions you ask mm. and kind of keep the conversation rolling and what you're trying to introduce by way of the gospel. So it seems like those three or four themes always get the attention, but it wasn't, it wasn't what caught my attention as I was studying the passage. And so that led us off into uh, the content of the message that we shared on Sunday. Yeah. Cause on just based, even just giving the, description of why it was a big deal like I guess kind of falls into social lines but like the racial divisions that existed then and then existed throughout history I'm sure that is a uh, easy this is a good story for a sermon that's going to be talked about about how in God's church and his kingdom race doesn't matter I would, I would assume huh? oh yeah yeah it's it's one of several key passages that give us insight into Jesus breaking through racial and social barriers to introduce a kingdom that doesn't see, you know, race, um, doesn't see gender, doesn't see um, a lot of the social conventions that we as human beings tend to get wrapped around. And it's interesting too, because he doesn't, at least from what I know about the verses, he doesn't seem to make it a big deal. He just kind of goes and talks to her. And I think a lot of times today we, we make race a really big deal and his action of even going to Samaria you could argue made it a big deal but um he I think he just kind of mirrored how we're supposed to interact with people no matter what their race are race is rather than like being um too forceful with noticing race on purpose I guess does that make sense yeah yeah and I, I think one of the unfortunate realities of how much race is a part of the conversation today it's it's just made everybody jumpy mm -hmm. and so whether it's male or female or whether it's black and white or whether it's you know democrat or republican or whether it's liberal or conservative we've got so many labels out there right now and everybody's my observation is and this would be a personal observation from my own experience, but also just talking to other people. Everybody's walking on eggshells. They're, they're just petrified. They're going to say the wrong thing and create offense because people are so quickly offended. And we've, for, you know, in a number of different ways, we've just 
made race such a factor that unfortunately I think what's going to eventually happen if we don't find a way to come back from it or step back from it is that pretty soon we're going to we're going to destroy social comfort we're going to destroy social interaction everybody everybody's so nervous about I'm going to say or do the wrong thing I'm going to offend or hurt somebody's feelings and so I I just again this isn't where we're headed here but um what I'm afraid of is people are going to just stop talking to each other. I, yeah. I don't mean that like completely, but we're just going to, we're going to end up becoming a silent people socially. Basically we're going to all stay in our lane in our own little bubble and rather than risk, you know, getting into trouble over some sort of gender or, or racial issue we're just not going to talk to each other and it's going to become a really lonely world. Yeah. Yeah. Cause people will just be siloed into the groups that they know think like them. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's already happening. Like even on large scale by state even. Yeah. Um, yeah. At least in the United States. But yeah, it's really interesting how he kind of just cuts through all that in a very nonchalant type of way that isn't making a big deal out of it. Um, but so you kind of talked about this, you kind of mentioned this is that she had a very checkered past, um, which I guess in, in, in that, at that time, her past was kind of a big no, no. So she had several husbands. Is that right? Yeah. So again, it's still, it's still very much a Jewish morality. The Samaritans think of themselves as Jews. So there's still very much this. Jewish morality, this Jewish social conventions, um, Jewish faith. And so, the, and they would have had an, 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 an adherence to the Mosaic law or the Jewish scriptures. So, yeah, we, Jesus doesn't go into detail or she doesn't go into detail, but evidently there's something sordid about having been through five husbands. Mm. Now, we don't know the stories. It could have been matters of abuse. It could have been matters of, you know, convenience. Who knows what it was? But um, the way that Jesus describes it and her reaction to the revelation, there's some sort of a shame. He's not saying it to shame her, but she feels like, oh, I can't believe he knows this about me. Mm. And then he says, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. So that would have been living together outside of marriage, yeah. which again, in a Jewish culture at that time, was was very, very um, offensive. Yeah, and taboo, I'm sure. Yeah, so there's just the dynamics of the passage that he brings it up and her reaction to the fact that he knows these things suggests that there's a lot more to those five relationships than... I simply lost five husbands along the way through, you know, all five of them passed away. Yeah, what are the odds, right? Yeah. 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 And I guess also the fact that she's out there by herself in the middle of the day, which is supposedly not what you would do if you were going to go all the way out to the well, um, that also suggests that people 
this, the, her community uh, kind of made her an outcast. Yeah, so again, just little clues that you see throughout the passage. Um, we're told that Jesus arrives at the well. It was noon, so the hottest part of the day or part of the hot afternoon, and that she comes out alone to fetch water. Again, it's just conjecture, but conjecture from what we know about history and culture. Um, she was probably not welcomed in the community of women who would typically travel together out to the well, some for company, some for you know just protection and, and safety. They would travel together typically in the early morning hours because that would have been the coolest part of the day. They may have gone in the evening, but depending on the distance of the well from the town, depending on then determines if they get back before yeah. nightfall and stuff. But typically you need the water for the day's activities. So it's, a, it's, it's assumed that because she comes alone in the hottest part of the day, she's not welcome to come with the other women traveling in the morning. Or maybe she doesn't feel comfortable coming yeah. with those because of the judgment that she feels from them. That's what I was about to bring up. Yeah, so again, just the kind of contextual clues is she's there because she lives very much a life of isolation due to whatever it is that her past has created by way of reputation. Yeah. And, I, and yeah, because I was about to bring up the fact that, well, maybe she has uh, kind of ostracized herself to a certain degree. I've had friends who, you know, they get off into something that they know isn't good and that, like, say, our friend group wouldn't react uh, supporting, uh, I guess, supportive of, wouldn't be supportive of. They've, they, I always know that if I haven't seen somebody for a long time, it's, uh, that's unusual, that's probably something like that. Mm -hmm. They yeah. they take themselves out of it to avoid the judgment mm -hmm. um, or, or, yeah, I guess just being seen or, or people finding out. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like that's probably at least one aspect of what this woman was experiencing because um, I'm sure that she has placed a lot of guilt and shame on herself for her previous actions, whatever they may be, and her current living scenario, right. especially in the presence of a rabbi who um, most rabbis would be would shame her yes. in reaction to. Yes. Right? So, um, and again, and we, we really do that. I think a lot of the time, whenever we make mistakes, we, or whenever we mess up or whenever we're living in sin, I think we're harder on ourselves than a lot of other people would be or even... Jesus it is or feels towards us, you think? Yes, my experience with myself personally and my observation as a pastor is we, we as people rarely afford ourselves the same grace that we afford others or that Jesus affords us. Yeah. And so um, we, we choose the shame and the guilt because we think it'd be impossible for Jesus to be forgiving and loving toward us. Why do you think we do that? Like, even with other people, let's just say, like, uh, parents or a friend group or whatever it may be, why do you think that we do that to ourselves, even though we know we wouldn't react that way to one of them? Uh, that's a great question. Um, 
I've had to, you know, I've had to sort that out personally a bit because I, I know my own experience. I'm not as gracious to myself as I, I am f- toward others. I, I don't know that I have it figured out. Um, I think our sense of justice, our sense of right from wrong is um, just a whole lot more stringent for ourselves than in most cases stringent for ourselves and we we allow people a lot more room to be the humans that they are but we don't give ourselves the same room i think i found with myself that it's actually it's ultimately pride that keeps me from hmm. doing it cuz i think well it's a self image issue too yeah, yeah. Um, and i'm sure that like working in the church for as long as you have being very guarded with the areas of your like past mistakes or whatever it is. Cause I know I've been working with civil Oath since 2017 and like it's a self image issue. But even if I wasn't working at civil, I wouldn't want other people to know all my junk, you right. know? Right. And, and then also I, I put myself, I guess, well, I'm above that. Right. You're above, above what, whatever it is that I'm dealing with. Oh. Right. Um, I, Everybody knows, and myself included, that like Wyatt doesn't do that kind of thing. Mm. And so, granted, I think that way more than anybody else does because they probably see me the same way I see them. Somebody else messes up, I'm like, yeah, that's about, of course, sure. But like, <laughs> myself, no way. Yeah. Um, of course, I know it. It's just there's this prideful aspect of it that wants me to deal with it and then uh, just kind of keep up the charade, you know? that's always a temptation yeah so pride's probably a good explanation the the other explanation i've come up with is somewhat of an understanding is that um we tend to be very performance oriented yeah and we think that we have to earn god's love and god's forgiveness and so we're pretty judgmental when we know that we're behaving in ways that we wouldn't approve of or we don't approve of and we think that, that God must feel the same way about it that we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was some of the hope I was offering on Sunday when I, when I was exploring the idea that Jesus knows everything about you. Um, I then made a transition. I said, Jesus understands everything about you. He knows why you do the things that you do. And he understands it from a much bigger picture than we could ever imagine. So... He understands the human heart. He understands the devastating impact of sin. And he knows that all of us, our hearts have been devastated by sin, so it's created all sorts of brokenness and dysfunction and insecurity and um, lies that we've adopted and we live by. And so he doesn't, he doesn't excuse our sin, but he, he understands it. Yeah. And so I think that helps him to be more gracious toward us because he knows where it comes from. Yeah, he experienced it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas we sit with our very limited perspective and we the the real popular lie is God could never love me because of what I'm done or what I'm doing. Uh for me it's always been how could he love me with as many times as I've done it? You know, it's still like there's got to come a point where I just wear out his patience. Yeah, especially if it if it occurs. This is something that I like. If especially if it occurs 
post like following him post deciding that he's your king it's like i wish that it could all just be left at the door right whenever you enter in you know <laughs> yeah. it's like okay that life's done yeah but it's not that way no it's, so in the story of my life is this just been this back and forth back and forth this this attitude and spirit of deep devotion and then i crash and i pursue things that are destructive in my life and then you know then i go back to devotion and i'm sorry and i repent and here's my confession of the sin and and then you know a great stretch and then i crash again and and that's been a story told and retold very often and so there's there's always been the struggle in my life of saying you know at some point he's just got to say you know wilson yeah, I'm done with you. Yeah. I know this is temporary. This devotion, it's temporary, and you're you go back to your old ways. So forget it. And he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't because he's infinite and eternal. Then his capacity to love infinitely and to show grace eternally is available. Mm-hmm. And. You know, so much of our faith is coming to grips with the fact of how different God is from us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that he doesn't call us to perfection. No. Um, I don't want to say ever, but at least not in this life. He doesn't necessarily, but he, but he does say, hey, at least aim at perfection. He invites us to a life well lived. Yeah. He would love to see us do that perfectly. He understands that we won't or can't. And then that's where the provision of the cross and the glory of the gospel provides. It's like, I know you're going to fail. I'm going to still call you to righteousness. I know you're going to fail. I still call you to righteousness. And every time that you fail, there's grace sufficient. Yeah. And so we end up, I think part of growing in our faith is coming to to trust that and to understand I live in grace. I, I love it. Romans says, uh, into this grace that we now stand. Like this is our standing. We stand covered, surrounded, uh, upheld by grace. And it doesn't matter how far we veer off, quote unquote, a path or the path we're still on a foundation of grace. Where would you say that, and it's so hard, but and I'm sure you've heard this, but like people often will take advantage of that and be like, well, God's going to forgive me anyways, so I can have fun in my college years. <laughs> you know? Yeah. How you know, many times I've heard that, and I'm just like, ooh. Yeah. Don't let him hear you yeah, say that. Yeah, and that's just, that's just a misunderstanding of the truth. Um. Romans 6 talks about that very dilemma, um, this idea that I, I'm, I'm permitted to do whatever I want because grace is sufficient. And Jesus is saying, no, see, now you're, you're not understanding the calling to a life of obedience. Yeah. Now what you're doing is you're abusing the grace that I'm offering you. Um, there's, a, there's a difference between... I make poor choices and I do the wrong thing. Un- not, I'm not intentionally setting out to do that, but I crash and burn and I, I make the wrong choice. And I, I commit that which is offensive to a holy God. There's grace for that. 
But there's a whole different mindset that says, oh, I'm free to do whatever I please because yeah. I have grace. Well, now, now we're talking about motives. We're talking about intentionality. And again, there's grace for that, but I think God probably responds to it differently than the spirit of I made an honest poor choice. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why you, you have, you probably have situations where God in his grace withholds his discipline because he, he understands the heart. And then there's probably those times where he sees, well, that's just a very um, obvious uh, rebellious kind of spirit. And I have to break that and discipline is the way that I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, a, it's a very weird line to walk. Um, yeah, it's a very, some, I mean, it's, it's easy to understand and people, I think people, even whenever they, whenever I hear people say it or whenever they're living it, maybe not, they, they don't say it, but I think they even know like, Hey, I think it's more of a wish than it is anything else I, I think that they even know that it's it's corrupted but um i also haven't heard anybody say that that like was all that uh the fruits of their salvation were not plentiful before they said it let's just say that and so it's like <laughs> okay um not that i'm judging that but it's just like yeah. well would have never guessed all right i guess you can keep it going by that whatever um so basically what we're seeing there is just different levels of spiritual maturity, yeah, which yeah, yeah, are yeah. often influenced by spiritual levels of mentoring. So if people haven't had, you know, good mentoring in their young faith, then then they're they're just prone to a lot of incorrect thinking and rationalization about why I can do what I want to do. Yeah, not having to change their life. I think that a, yeah. lot, a lot of the younger people don't under they don't like that part of the gospel they don't like the part they like the part and i i kind of hope that somebody touches on this encounter about uh and i think the samaritan woman is actually very similar but the woman caught in adultery whenever all of the religious leaders uh wanted to stone her jesus comes out and he rebukes them saying well he who's without sin cast the first stone eventually they all leave and then uh he tells her well, he's, he's obviously saves her life because i they may have been justified by law in stoning her, but then he says, well, now go and sin no more. They don't like talking about yeah, that last part. Yeah, they don't cover that. They don't cover that part. Like, uh, everywhere. You never see it. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you look at the message of the church the last maybe 25, 50 years, it may go back further than that. The message of the church is largely... Just believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. Yeah. And you don't hear quite as much about repentance. You don't hear quite as much about confession. And you don't hear quite as much about submission, surrender, and obedience. It's just believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it is that simple, but it's, it's not. And the word believe... If you understand that word, it's it's a lot more than just saying, okay, yes, I'll, I'll accept that Jesus died on the cross for me to pay for my sin. I, I give assent to that. It, the word believe has much more meaning to it to say, 
now that I've given assent to this truth, I will reorder my life around it. Yeah. And you just don't hear a lot of that message, or you haven't heard a lot of that message. So, yeah, there's an entire generation that's really been raised on this idea. I just need to assent, give assent to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. But there's not a lot of the same amount of conversation about obedience now to him as your Savior yeah. or your Lord. Yeah, and I, I've kind of been working through just how, uh, I guess it'd be what you probably call systematic theology, but it's like, well, if you believe this, if you believe Christ died on the cross to, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, well, everything else kind of falls underneath that to a certain degree. A lot of things fall underneath that to a certain degree, and you, and you can't ignore them. Like they're all underneath the umbrella, and so if you take the umbrella, uh, you're also taking those things with it too. Yeah, and what I'm the point I want uh, I'm wanting to make is that um, nobody's ever really told anybody what's underneath the umbrella. Yeah, I agree. Uh huh. And so you got a lot of people just acting acting in some ways out of ignorance. It's it's not that it's this willful rebellious spirit sometimes it is but sometimes they just don't know yeah of what their calling is all about and so they're acting in ignorance um not an excuse but an explanation yeah or even if they have heard what they are supposed supposed to do and not supposed to do they've heard it in the manner of those religious leaders with the stones rather than yeah uh jesus and the way he would explain it. Yeah. It's very interesting. In our staff meeting, or in our pastor's meeting this morning, we were, we were doing a um, study on the sovereignty of God, and we got into one of our pastors asked a question, and, and I was making the point, why, why do we think for a moment that having a relationship with God or following Jesus, why, why do we think for a moment that it should be easy? Mm. Now, there's parts of it that were intended to be easy in the sense of a joy and a peace and a, a safety. You know, it's the come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I'll give you rest. Um, but it's not an easy relationship. That's why you have verses, <clears throat> excuse me, that indicate it. I give faith. I, I reward the faith of those who diligently seek me. Seek me with your whole heart. Ask, knock, seek. There's this. There's a sense of I. God is saying, if you earnestly pursue this relationship with me, you will come to find its many benefits. But if if you think it's just this easy thing I throw a little bit of my time and energy at, you know, once a week on a Sunday morning, it's not, I, I'm not saying you can't have a relationship, but you shouldn't expect that that relationship's going to grow deep and return huge dividends. Yeah, because you've just you're just in a sense taking the easy way out. You're just putting the least amount of effort into it. 
and I think we talked about this a week or two ago, um, anything in life that really matters and is truly rewarding generally requires some sacrifice Mm -hmm. and some discomfort. And, you know, it takes a lot of diligence. You don't just go out and run a marathon. You have to put the work in and the hours and hours of sacrifice of comfort and convenience to be able to prepare for something. And then you go out, you do the race and you cross the finish line and you're like, you you feel this wonderful sense of accomplishment and a sense of fulfillment. I did that. I ran 26 miles because you diligently pursued this objective. Yeah. But you probably couldn't have done that without making that sacrifice and experiencing that discomfort. And so um, I, I just recently became kind of aware of like, yeah, I, I think I need to be honest with people that while Jesus offers a salvation for free, it's not an easy road. Um, there's a part of it, take up your cross and follow me. Yeah. Lose your life. From Deny yourself, lose your life. Uh, all those phrases, I think they have importance. I guess I guess in the context of like a sermon, in the context of a presentation of the gospel, you, it's like you can't cover it all. Mm. It's just this inexhaustible topic. And so, you know, the preacher resorts to what's the most pertinent information I need these this unregenerate person to understand, and that is there's this free gift, and it's called salvation, and... If you'll place your trust in Jesus as Savior, that gift will be given to you. Yes, I, I agree with that. But there's a lot to saying if you'll trust Jesus. Yeah. And it's not about works. It's about the following of a Savior who is your king. And he invites you into things that will require change. And change is hard. Yeah. Yeah, and it's painful. Like, it can be actually painful. Um, having to die to yourself isn't easy. It's a sacrifice. All the things um, uh, that you probably don't even like yourself, but that are really hard to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm sure for the Samaritan woman that she didn't have this conversation with Jesus, run off and then never make a mistake again. And I'm sure that um, the woman caught in adultery probably made some more mistakes afterwards. Um, and then it was a very hard process to get to transform and, and to follow Jesus on that path. Um, I mean, it's like addiction, like sin itself, just all of it is like addiction. It's very hard to give it up. And I'm not just talking about things that are addictive. No, I, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I, I agree. And sin is a very powerful and pervasive dimension of the human heart. And it's not all about, you know, the big, the big ones. It's not all about murder and it's not all about, you know, genocide or it's not all about rape or yes, those are expressions of sin, but we can go down into the finer nuance of motives and attitudes and words and daily actions that on the surface might appear very socially acceptable and and moral, but in the eyes of a holy God, they're wrong. Yeah. Things that, like, don't even seem necessarily bad, too. 
but there just aren't um, the best, whatever God, uh, I guess, desires. Um, things that would otherwise just seem kind of milk toast, like, well, that's neither good nor bad. And it's like, well, right. there's, there's a better option. I think that choosing, uh, not choosing the best option, the one that you you know God wants, is sinning still, even if the other one isn't necessarily bad, quote unquote. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a very overarching term, I guess. But um, so <clears throat> getting back to the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, her, uh, Jesus knowing everything, and and you spent a lot of time on this on Sunday too, What's the significance of Jesus knowing everything? Yes, um, he. It just means that we can't keep everything from him. What What is beneficial in a relationship like that? Not that we have a choice. Yeah. He knows it anyways. But <laughs> I, I think it is the. There's a certain safety that comes with it. Um knowing that you're in a relationship with a God who knows everything about you and there's no secrets, then I don't have to hide. Yeah. And I don't have to pretend and I don't have to, I don't have to put on a face. And there aren't many places in our lives where that's allowed. You have to put on a face when you go to work. You have to put on a face when you go to church. You have to put on a face when you're with some friends. And, you know, the truth of the matter is a lot of the marriages that I know about, people who have to put on a face every morning they wake up, they have to pretend to be something that their marriage isn't really. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, we, we can, in those kinds of relationships where we can't be truly transparent about who and what we are, then there's, there's just this un, this abiding stress yeah. this abiding fear, this abiding shame. And so we just always live under the burden of, oh, if they only knew the truth. And that's the uh, that's the paradox because Jesus says things like, uh, knowing the truth sets you free. And Jesus talks about coming out of the shadows and coming into the light. And what what's in the light is freedom. In the shadows is the fear of being found out, being discovered, of being humiliated, of being embarrassed, of being shamed and guilted. And we lived, we we choose to live in the shadows because we can't trust that for me to be completely vulnerable with who and what I am actually leads to freedom. Um, and... Granted, let me think about this before I say it. Uh, granted, that doesn't mean that we just go around throwing up all of the truth about ourselves to everybody. Yeah. Because we don't have the safety that that everybody's going to protect our our secret or protect our, our truth. Yeah, and well, they don't have the same motivation for yeah. your life that you don't know that they have the same motivation for your life that God does. Yeah, so you know if you if you're too transparent to the wrong people, then the next thing you know, there's all this rumor going out there. Did you know, right? And that's not safe because now you're you've been exposed, and people make poor choices with what to do with that information. Mm-hmm. But 
science will tell you this isn't even about scripture. Science will tell you that having a few relationships in your life where you can truly be vulnerable with who you are is a very healthy place to be. Those are those are rare treasured relationships where you can tell somebody the honest truth about who you are and what you are and still receive the acceptance and the love and the uh, the embrace. But the truth of the matter is those are very, very rare kinds of relationships. Yeah, and they're hard to cultivate. Yeah. Or they take time to cultivate. They take a lot of time and a lot of repetition. Mm-hmm. To time. build up that trust. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because I definitely agree. There is something about bringing something out into the light, letting it be known. Um, that Well, one, you no longer have to lie about it. And whenever you're trying to hide something that's about your life that's uh, kind of hard to hide, then one lie turns into this big web of lies. And so yeah. it's very, very hard to maintain and to know what you said a week ago and what it is now. And, uh, and then everything just kind of means being a lie. You mean to live a lie. Right. Like your entire life is just you living a lie. Uh, nothing's really genuine about it. And so knowing that you can go to God and have a relationship with Jesus um, where it's completely transparent and you can be free of all of that stress, um, does that allow like, those things that really bother us, those things that shame or that, that we put shame on ourselves for or that we're guilty of? Just how does bringing it into the light necessarily help with that feeling? Um, because people assume, especially if they haven't come or they don't have a relationship with Jesus, people assume that they would feel even worse once it's before him, right? Right. So I guess that's also paradoxical. And and why is it not what they assume? Well, if I understand your question, so they have this image in their mind of who God is and who Jesus is. And nine times out of 10 or 90 time, 99 times out of 100, most people's perception of God is that he's angry and ornery and drives a hard bargain. And so if you do anything to disappoint him, you're going to be on the receiving end of his wrath. Mm-hmm. That's the general perception of who God is. He's not the loving, gracious, compassionate being that the scriptures describe him to be. And, you know, that's just misinformation about God. So they can't imagine that they couldn't they can't imagine that it's actually true that if they came to him in all of the truthfulness of who they are that actually uh, endears them to him more um i've always said jesus jesus loves us loves it when we're honest yeah because any other th- anything other than honesty is performance and pretense and, and pretending, and I don't think he likes that. Mm-hmm. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want that. He wants to have this transparent, open, comfortable, safe relationship with us that his grace provides. So he's like, Paul, quit, quit trying to hide. You can't hide from me, so quit trying. Yeah. Yeah, kind of going back to the, I guess, exercise or any kind of physical 
uh, anything physical that you'd be trying to pursue. It's very hard to performance enhancing drugs, but it's very hard to lie or or to or continuously lie about where like how strong you actually are. Right. It's like, well, I could say that I can bench three hundred, but as soon as I get underneath <laughs> a, a bar, like that's not going to be true. Right. Um, I did two seventy five once, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Not just anymore. One, that was a couple of years ago. That was a couple of years ago. Not yeah. no more. Um, but anyways, but like it, you can't lie about it. And so, um, and and also last, uh, yeah, last episode we talked about how God doesn't want to be, or yeah, God wants to be in all of your lives. He doesn't want to be compartmentalized into right. a Sunday morning or or even well every morning at six. This is going to be whenever I talk to God and everything else. No, and so whenever we compartmentalize. Um, all of our baggage, we also aren't dealing with it. Like we're keeping it out of our sight too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever you bring it out and you th- throw it all onto the living room floor, you're like, well, now I have to deal with this junk, right? So I definitely think that that's a big, like every psychologist or counselor would be, they would say, hey, uh, you have to bring out the thing that you're afraid of, that you're guilty of. We have to deal with that, Um what is it called? Uh, whenever you're afraid of something, um, exposure therapy, kind of same thing. But you're afraid of what's in your closet, or you're afraid, uh, and you're guilty, and you're shameful about all of these things. Well, it's gonna be very hard to move past it if you don't address it face on, right. right? Yeah, I mean, just take take the illustration of uh, a closet in your house that is just an absolute wreck. Everything's just stuffed in there, and like you the, know it. Like the random things drawer that every kitchen has. Yeah, every kitchen has it. <laughs> and every time you're open it, you're like, oh, so frustrating. I can't find anything about what I'm looking for. And this is a mess, and I'd hate for my friends to see, you know, all of that. And then you, you get this wild hair, and you decide, you know what? I am going to clean out this closet. And what do you do? You pull it all out. Yeah. The best thing for you to do is like literally empty the closet. And then what do you get to do? You get to throw away things that you haven't used and won't ever use again. You get to decide what's worth keeping. And then maybe you get to, uh, you get the opportunity now to be a bit more purposeful and you buy a couple of bins or, you know, a couple of baskets. So everything has a place. And then you get everything back in the closet that you need and it's neat and tidy. And you step back and you're like, oh. Well, I think it's possible to live our lives like that. Yeah. But we can't live our lives like that unless we openly address that which is cluttering our heart. Yeah. And I think that's what the safety of God's grace is. One of the things it affords is, yeah, let's open the closet. Let's get some light in there. Let's get some fresh air in there and None of this is going to scare me. I've seen it all before. I've been around since the world began, and I've seen everything. So you're not going to scare me. You're not going to, you know, offend me. I mean, it's offensive to me, but it's not going to be a, a thing that decides our relationship. So let's get in there. Let's get after it, and let's find some ways to address it. And that way we can stand back and look at a life that has a really appealing content mm-hmm. and and then you can celebrate and you can feel the satisfaction and the freedom that comes with knowing i have no secrets 
I am honest before God, and he knows my junk. He knows where I'm broken. He knows the poor choices I'm going to make in the future, but I'm giving him my very best of devotion to pursue him and to live in his grace without abusing it. And what we end up having, what we end up finding is contentment because we don't feel scared. We don't feel like we're lacking. We don't feel like um, God's, you know, going to run out of patience with us. I heard this one line, I forgot who said it, but it was just, it was very simple. It kind of sums up all of that. It, it's uh, live in such a way that you need not lie. Hmm. And boy, that is so, to not have to worry about give an explanation of why you're doing this or where you're at or who you're talking to um, ever. It's a very, very freeing, mm-hmm. such a burden taken off of you, you know? Yeah. To, to live that way. Yeah. I don't know. When I, when I was a teenager, I, 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 you know, it's not like I can point to a date on time, but I, I do remember making some sort of conscious choice. Like I don't like, the burden of trying to maintain lies. Yeah. So it's not to say I've never told a lie. I've told many of them, but I just wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a thing with me. I'd much rather tell the truth and own up to stuff as hard as it might be. And I have found that in the quest for truth, the sooner you're honest, the easier it is to receive some sort of understanding and forgiveness back. But when you've maintained a lie for a long time and deceived someone, and then you, you know, you finally come clean, it's just a lot, it's a lot more of a violation of the trust. I I remember this, um, this incident and it's kind of a formative experience. So me and a couple of my buddies, we would have been high school, junior high school. Um, We were, we were at a soccer game, a college soccer game. We weren't playing. So we, we were watching this college soccer game. And one of us had a soccer ball. And we went off from where the game was happening. And there was a big patch of grass up against the building. And we were just kicking the ball around. And I ended up kicking it. And it missed the guy I was passing it to. And it went through a window. A ground floor window, which was the library. And I immediately ran into the building to make my way to the library. But all my friends saw me was running. And they thought I ran off. And what I did is I ran kind of the shortcut into the library. And I I still remember his name was Mr. McLean. I said, Mr. McLean, I just broke a window. He goes, oh, yeah, we heard that. And thank you for owning up to it, it's fine, we'll fix the window, and here's your ball back, <laughs> right? And uh, and to me, it was like, yeah, just open up. You, you broke a window, that happens. You, you kicked the ball through it. And that was just completely normal. Yeah. Th- th- meaning I wanted that to be completely normal. So it was funny that I'd come back out, and I'm carrying the ball, and all my friends are like, oh, you ran off of it? And I'm like, no, I ran to the library to tell them. <laughs> and they're like, you did? You owned up to it? I'm like, yeah, because that's just a freer way to live. It's not like you just shot someone where the cops aren't <laughs> on their way. Exactly. So I, have, I find honesty 
I find a certain level of transparency with the right people. I find it very freeing. And I, I hate the burden of trying to maintain the story if the story is not true. Because yeah. like you just mentioned, you don't know who you told what and you don't know what iteration of the lie they know. And so it's just trying to juggle all those balls of you know keeping your story straight. I find exhausting. Yeah. Now, I have my other vices, but lying has never been... A real thing for me, it's not an attractive thing to me because um, I just, I celebrate truth. I like honesty. It's just a lot easier way to be. Yeah. And that isn't, of course, that isn't to say for anybody listening that there aren't environments where it, not that lying is good, but where it doesn't make more sense that you did lie. Because if there's a lot of fear, um, or even like even some churches are like this. Like some churches are not necessarily the safest place to go tell your junk to, unfortunately, even though that they are they're supposed to be. Any like any other place or any other group or whatever it may be, there are there there are people who will react hatefully um, and far too judgmentally than they should. Um, but and so just to kind of couch or not couch that, but kind of to give that. Um, side example of just, hey, I guess I can see some places to where, uh, you know, if you grew up with a father who was um, abusive, like I would make way more sense to me that that person lied, you know? Yeah. Um, But that even just makes the point even more that find Jesus and then to find a church that is a safe place to do that. Um, And that is upholding what Christ calls the church to be. Right. Uh, where you can be truthful and transparent with the right people. Yeah, there's lots of motivations behind why yeah. people lie. Sometimes it's to advance themselves. Sometimes it's to protect themselves. And depending on what they're protecting themselves from, um, in some respects, may explain why they why they lie. Um, but I think the longing there is boy, wouldn't it be nice to have the exactly. kind of relationship with my father where I don't have to lie because yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to get the crap beaten out of me. Yeah, like even even kids know something's off. Yeah. Because right? they sh- they're like, why am I fearful all the time? Yeah. Very true. Well, anything else in the woman of the well? Anything else that she can glean for us or any last words to uh, our moms? <laughs> to our moms. Um, yeah, the thing I was... I was wanting to get at in that message is even though Jesus knows everything about you, he still wants relationship with you and he can still use your life to be a witness for him. Um, And even though he knows everything about you, he loves to lavish you with everything that he has to give. Mm-hmm. So that's that was the relational lesson I was in search of for that message was rather than even though he knows everything about you now disqualifies you, it actually increases your qualifications for a relationship with him because he moves toward sinners. He moves toward broken people. It's I came to seek and to save the lost. I'm here to help the the sick and not the healthy. And so all, all these phrases of these quotes of Jesus 
reassure us that our sin doesn't scare him. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't ruin the capacity for him to share his grace with us. But so many people unfortunately operate well, I really messed up, so Jesus doesn't like me anymore. Yeah. And I'm saying, no, that's a lie, and don't live that way. Um, his grace is sufficient, and his relationship with you is without condition. There's no boundaries on it. And um, so, I, you know, in the end, uh, I can't remember exactly what the quote was, but there's it something about it's the safest relationship you ever have. Yeah. Yeah, in a relationship with Jesus, there are no secrets. There's only one life-giving. There's only the life-giving grace of the one who knows everything about you. And Name a safer place on earth mm-hmm. where you can be you and know that you're loved. And um, that's, that's in, in the exploration of what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus, that's one of the aspects is you get to live in the safety of him knowing everything about you and the relationship isn't threatened. And I I don't know that I've heard a lot of messages along that line. Yeah. And so, you know, it's fun. I'm finishing up this week's message on another character, and it's a whole different insight to what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. And it'll be very different from this one, but at the same time, I'm hoping it'll be kind of a reassuring um, safety of it's the safest relationship you'll ever have. Mm. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It, it really is amazing. And it's, and it's also beautiful how, like you said, that he can use your story, like that part of you, of you or that part of your past that you find to be the darkest and, and the hardest and the most painful not that he's going to make it disappear, but that he can turn it into a tool for good, for maybe helping other people who deal with the same thing, who experience the same thing. That's like it's it's the redeeming of yes, whatever the darkest part of your life is, and like that's to me that's such a beautiful aspect because it gives it allow it allows you to give a purpose to whatever it was that you experienced or or struggled with, and yeah. that it didn't previously have a purpose other than just to essentially haunt you. Right. Yeah, that's like exactly how you describe. It. That's the redemption of your brokenness. Yeah. Which, you know, we talk about redemptive community. That's God restoring lives and he's taken the mess and he's turning it into a message. And um you know, years ago uh Rick Warren provided some sort of a a context for people deciding how God could use them. And so he crafted this thing called shape I don't know if I'll remember all of them, but um, you got, you know, spiritual gifts and you got heart and you got passion, you got experience, and I can't remember what the A was. Something. <laughs> we'll find out later. All right. Um, but he talks about the E yeah. uh, shape being your experience. Mm. And he's saying that divorce you went through, that abortion that you had, that affair that you had, that addiction that you've walked through. Can you even imagine how life-giving it is for another person who's had an affair or been through an abortion or suffers an addiction for 
a devoted Christ follower to say, here's my story. Yeah. And here's how God's redeeming it. Here's the road I traveled in all of its ugliness, but here's where grace overcame it. And, um, you're welcome here. Like I, I had lunch with a gentleman, I don't know, it's maybe been four or five months ago. I met him after service. He came up and introduced himself after a, a message and was thanking me for something I'd said in the message. And I love to do lunches with people. So I said, well, I'd love to hear more of your story. Would you be open for lunch? And he's like, you want to have lunch with me? And I'm like, yeah, I just get better acquainted. So we met at Taco Cabana over on the other side of San Antonio because that's where he was working. And, and uh, he, he had let me know that he had a, he had a story. He hadn't told me the details. Come to find out, he had he had done something and spent four years in prison. And he was very, very reticent to tell me that. He didn't want me to know that he had been in prison. And then I remember telling him, I said, well, that's, you know, this through the conversation. I said, well, you know, it's interesting. We have, a, we have another gentleman at church who I know has spent time in prison for a crime that he committed. And the look of shock on his face. He's like, really? At your church? I'm like, yeah, and that's the one I know about. <laughs> and there's probably a few others yeah. that have served time for things that they've done wrong. And I said, and then, then we got this group of guys. They have a passion for prisoners. And every so many weeks, they're going into prison units, and they're doing Bible studies and worship services. And I got this one guy, and he's really involved in a ministry that helps introduce prisoners to their children and their children to their dads. And, and, and he was just like, really, really that, that exists. And I go, yeah. And it's, it exists all over our church. And you could just see this sort of like sense of relief come over him. Like, so I really am welcome here. And I was like, we built this church for you. And he said, he said something really interesting. It kind of caught me off guard at first. He said, so I could wear short sleeves? <laughs> and I said, well, of course. Why, why don't yeah. you think? He goes, I, I got some pretty, it's some pretty extreme tattoos. Mm. He says, some of them I got in prison. And I go, yeah, wear all the short sleeve shirts you want. Don't you be ashamed of those. Those are your story. And who knows who needs to hear your story? And, uh, yeah, so I I think that's what the church can be. And I think that's what the gospel is. And I think that's what a relationship with Christ is like, is this, this freedom to be honest about who you are. Yeah. And then watch God redeem it. And if you if you look at most addicts who are making progress in overcoming their addiction, one of the big steps that they take is to be honest and open about it, is yeah. to come out into the light and say, I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to porn. I'm addicted to gambling. I'm addicted to, you know, whatever it is. And not that you go around, you know, blaring that to everybody, but finding the safe people to tell the truth 
and then what you get back is love and acceptance and and embrace and being included and you realize they're not running from you and they're not you know condemning you and judging you then suddenly you feel like oh well maybe maybe it's safe to be honest and then i think that's where the really some really transforming work happens is got in that honesty and that transparency of the safety that's been provided you start finding more courage to be honest to it and then there's more room now to receive truth and receive help and hope because you're not you're not you know holding all that space up for shame and guilt and regret yeah so I think the woman at the well is a great illustration of what the church can be and what the gospel is. And um, I, my hope is that every quote-unquote Samaritan who ever comes through our doors finds a Jesus that says, I can use you. I can use, I can use your story. Mm. Very good. And I agree. All right, everybody. I'll see you next week.